Congratulations! You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. Kia ora koutou. You're listening to R1 News here on 91 FM. My name is Athena and I will be hosting Radio 1 for the hour solo as my co-host Gemma is isolating with COVID. So today's show, uh, I'm talking to the campaign delivery manager for Mind the Gap NZ, Nina Santos, about the government's new pay transparency guidelines, co-owner of Woof Bar, Dudley Benson, about their decision to keep vaccine passes, we talked to the co-president of Students with, for Environmental Action, Kate Bon, about Volunteer Week and the Container Return Scheme. And then we look at noise control in Dunedin and how it's affecting live venues and private events, events alike. But first, here's Bonnie with the news and weather. This is the news on Radio 191 FM. Kia ora koutou. This is your R1 News Bulletin. It is 11.04am. Ko Bonnie Aho. Director-General of Health Ashley Bloomfield will retire from the position in July. The Public Service Commission announced his resignation this morning. Bloomfield has received both domestic and international acclaim for New Zealand's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic under his direction. Bloomfield has held the office since 2018. Experts say that the southern DHB cases of COVID-19 have surpassed worst-case scenario modelling. Daily new case numbers in the south have been spiking irregularly, with over 1,400 cases reported on Tuesday, the second highest number of daily cases reported since the outbreak began. Southern DHB COVID-19 lead Dr Howell Lloyd said that while hospitalisations have been tracking on the lower end of modelling, the number was increasing. He warned that the south could continue to see several weeks of peaks. The government announced on Monday that the nation would stay in alert level red for at least another two weeks to prevent unmitigated community transmission. The United States is poised to impose additional sanctions on Russia in an effort to freeze out their resourcing for the war in Ukraine. The renewed sanctions are in response to attacks on civilians in Ukraine, with President Joe Biden yesterday calling President Vladimir Putin a war criminal and calling for an international criminal trial after several Ukrainian victims were found to have been killed at close range with evidence that they were tortured. The White House has announced it is considering an imminent ban on any investments in Russian enterprise, as well as increased sanctions against government officials and oligarchs and their families. That's the news. Now for weather. The Radio 191 FM weather. Itene in we have a high of 18 degrees, but you wouldn't know it because we're feeling some gale force winds this afternoon, gusting up to 90 kilometres per hour on the Otago Peninsula, going down to an overnight low of 8 degrees. Tomorrow, a high of 14 degrees for Thursday, a low of 9, some drizzle in the morning, clearing up by evening. And that's your weather.
titled Essence, and the song before was Just Be Yourself by Emmanuel. Okay, so now we have uh, Nina Santos talking to us about Mind the Gap NZ. A committee committee meeting in Parliament last month has prompted the government to consider putting a pay transparency regime in place. Employees will be able to compare their wages to other people working in their sector with the hopes that they will be able to use this information to be paid fairly. The Ministry of Women have been researching pay transparency and its impact since 2018 and their research covers its effects and many other countries including Australia and Iceland. Last year, organisation Mind the Gap NZ provided a policy recommendation and course for change on ethnic and gender pay reporting for Aotearoa. Data published from Statistics NZ was used in the policy recommendation, showing that Māori employees were earning 82% of the average hourly Pākehā wage in 2017, and Pacifica employees 77%. The gender pay gap was 9.1% in the June 2021 quarter and it has stayed for the past decade and the gap between a European male employees and a Pacifica woman is 27% and disabled people in Aotearoa also face a gap of 18%. We are joined live on the phone with with Nina Santos from Mind the Gap. Hi Nina, how are you? Hi, I'm really good thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining. Um, So I guess my first question is, um, what do you think of the pay transparency regime the government is considering? We're really, really excited. Um, So Mind the Gap uh, launched last year and we've been actively campaigning for pay gap transparency. And I guess um, 
the way to put it, it's that pay gap reporting is a um, it's a part of the whole pay transparency picture, a small smaller piece of the elephant per se. So we really we were really stoked to see the um, select committee's um, recommendations as well as the announcement, um, which pretty much said that work has begun on a new pay transparency regime. Yeah, so very stoked. Um, we're, we'll be watching the space closely. Cool. So um, Mind the Gap runs a voluntary pay registry. What has the uptake on that been like? Um, it's been really good. So about um, 50 large, larger employers in New Zealand currently report the gender pay gap, and um, less than 10 report gaps for Māori and Pacifica. So while the uptake of the registry has been good, it's definitely not as good as it would be if there was legislation in place. And that's what we're really campaigning for, for pay gap reporting to be required of um, our larger employers and larger businesses, because we know that the simple act of pay gap reporting is effective in closing the gap. Mm, exactly. And so what has research so far shown that, um, what, what are the some, some of the drivers of uh, the pay inequity? So the, um, the causes of the pay gaps are quite complex. So when you speak of pay gaps, it's quite different um, to equal pay and pay pay equity. So when you say equal pay, it refers to people being paid the exact same pay for the exact same roles. When you say pay equity, it refers to being paid um, to being paid the same for roles that require the same level of skills and energy. So I, in a way, pay gaps are caused by a combination of unequal pay and pay inequity, as well as a range of other factors many of which um, are quote-unquote unexplained. So in New Zealand, only about 20% of the gap can be attributed to things like educational differences um, or um, differences in skills or experience. 80%, so the majority of the gap, is actually unexplained. So we can only, um, so we assume, and you know, I, I believe that a part of it is due to um, bias and discrimination and the hiring practices of firms, and there are actually a lot of studies to um, back this up. Right. So um, why do you think the government has taken so long to be proactive about this pay gap? Uh, the question we ask ourselves. Um, it's, it's great that work has begun, but I. the, the problem is there is, in New Zealand, the culture of pay, pay secrecy and pay gap secrecy still persists. So the status quo means that it's better for a lot of our employers to keep their gaps and their this data close to the chest because um, in some instances it can be really big, right? But until you reveal the numbers, you actually run and measure the gaps, you won't know where to start addressing them. Um, I really like this quote that says, sunlight is the best disinfectant. So. We're really, um, so Man the Gap is campaigning for three things, right? We want new legislation in place that will make pay gap reporting compulsory. We also want businesses to take the lead on this issue by voluntarily um, signing up to our pay gap registry, which is now live. And we're asking the public to just ask um, their employers and businesses they encounter about their pay gaps. Because we want to highlight this issue. Pay and pay gaps have long been taboo topics, and we really need to use our consumer power to um, bring it to the limelight. Right. I was going to ask you about Just Ask. Is that essentially um, just asking in your yes. workforce? Yes. So Just Ask is another um, important pi- 
important part of our campaign. It's basically just that, just asking. It can be as simple as asking on social media or asking via email. You can ask your employer, um, hey, boss, what, what are our company's pay gaps? Have we registered to be, my, to be part of Mind the Gap's pay gap registry? But understand that um, this topic can be quite hard to approach, especially due to the power imbalances in workplaces. So we can also use our consumer power, right? We can talk to, we can ask companies who we pay bills to every month, or power companies, or um, what, what, what? Um, sorry, power companies and our um, banks. So you know, people we businesses we encounter on the regular, we can ask them about their pay gaps and check whether they've committed to this important issue. Awesome. Oh, well, thank you so much, Nina, for giving us that insight into Mind the Gap. Yeah, um, I'd really encourage everyone to visit our website. Yeah. We have a lot of resources on um, how to start on the conversation. We have guides on how to ask. And I really want to point out that if you, those with the power and privilege do ask in workplaces um, should be doing it on behalf of others who, who can't. So this can look like senior staff asking for junior staff and talking mm-hmm. and asking for colleagues of diverse cultures because we really need to um, use their privilege to do something good. Exactly, and strengthen the community in that kind of way as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that. Awesome. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye.
That was Come Back to Me by Wave Zero. The time is 11.27 and this is R1 News. With vaccine passes no longer being required throughout Aotearoa, as of midnight Monday, few businesses have kept this system voluntarily. However, Otipoti Bar, WUF, announced yesterday that it was keeping on the vaccine passes. This comes with still still with rising COVID-19 case count in Otipoti despite the decline nationwide. Now on air with us we have Dudley Benson, co-owner of WUF. How are we going? Kia ora, Tina. Can you hear me all right? Yes, yes, we've got right. you. Um, sure. thanks, for com- thanks for talking with me today. My pleasure. Um, so how, how has it been working in hospitality and running a bar during COVID, first of all? Well, I think like for all of us in whatever we do, whether we're students or we're working in hospitality or we're working as an essential worker, um, it's, you know, it's been a really difficult two years. We've all had to make major sacrifices. A lot of it has not been much fun at all with lockdowns, uh, with friends and family becoming ill. It's, it's been really tough. Um, and certain restrictions like the vaccine pass, for example, they, you know, they put a lot of pressure on us in hospitality. We, we have to have more staff to be able to take care of that. There's more to have to think about when we have people coming in. You know, it's a big deal. So we haven't taken it lightly that we've decided to maintain vaccine passes. Right. So are there, are there many other business owners, owners in Dunedin keeping the vaccine passes that you know of? No, I don't know. I don't. I don't really know. I suspect not. Um, I I've understand anecdotally that there are that there's generally a sense of relief from hospitality that they now no longer have to do that, and I certainly don't blame them. Um, in many ways, we'd rather not be doing it too, um, for the reasons I just described. It's more work, and you know we get grief from people who can't be bothered getting their phone out and showing us their vaccine pass for the, you know, for the eight seconds that that takes. Um, so we'd rather not be doing it either, but the, the, our patrons who we've talked to over the last week and a half have almost unanimously told us that they would feel safer in our space knowing that vaccine passes are maintained. So we're listening to them. We're also looking at the fact that, as you said, uh, case numbers are rising in Dunedin and we want to make sure that our immunocompromised patrons and our vulnerable, our older people all feel as safe as possible with the minimal amount of risk as possible while they're at WOLF. Right, exactly. Um, so how, so 
What's the plan for WUF moving forwards? Can you see this um, the co- the vaccine passes being a requirement for quite some time, or is this dependent on cases? It's very difficult to know, and we're just going to. What we've put out in our policy at the moment is that we're going to monitor it week by week and let people know what they need to do. Um, it's very much it is. I think, dependent on a couple of things. It is about case numbers and where COVID is at in our city. Um, But also when people start to feel safe too. Um, That's what we're also taking into account. I think think it's really important to listen to people with how how they're feeling. And I noticed that since we announced this policy, we've had a huge amount of support on social media, but we've had also a large number of people who aren't from Dunedin and who've never been to Wolf, but who are anti-mandate, anti-vaccination, who have been attacking us on our social media. Um, and what they're not, what they fail to acknowledge when they're attacking us and accusing us of being, um, uh, bringing on apartheid and spreading more misinformation on mm. our Facebook page, what they're not failing to acknowledge is that our people want this. This isn't just a decision from us um, as co-owners and staff at Wolf. This is what our people want. Um, so we're very much listening to them and how people feel guides our decision. And I feel like that is a process that really values your customers as well, which is good to see. Um, yeah. yeah, well, thank you so much for your insight today. Um, yeah, it's been really good. Cool. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks for having thank me. Thank you so much. See you later. Okay, so that was Dudley Benson, co-owner of Woof. Uh, Now we have Shine by Ripple Effect.
Okay, that was Shine by Ripple Effect. Um, you're listening to Radio 191 FM. And now I have Kate Bonnet, co-president of Students for Environmental Action in the booth with me. Kia ora, Kate. How are you doing? Kia ora. I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so this week is Student Volunteer Week. Uh, is C helping to run any of these events? And what events this week can students get involved in? Yeah, so um, that's primarily run by the Social Impact Studio. So we're not organising anything directly, but definitely uh, behind all of those events. And just happens that um, most of them do have some kind of sustainability theme to them. So, yeah, there's a lot that I'd recommend people get behind. Like um, there's a, a Tetra Pak making um, video going out, if not an in-person workshop. And then on Friday there's... Um, a street cleanup as part of the Sophia Charter from 12 to 2 so that's going to be I think pretty amazing to get a good turnout for that and then on Saturday we wind up with two good deed and feeds which just as the name suggests is um, getting a good feed but also doing some really great mahi out in the community so one group is going to the Otago Peninsula and the other to um, Waitati near Orokanui Eco Sanctuary and doing some tree planting. So it sounds like it's going to be a good week. Yeah, that sounds like um, good fun, actually. Um, where can people, where can students kind of uh, put their name down for this? Is there like a website? Yeah, yeah. there's, um, I think, some forms floating around. If you check out the um, Unicrew Instagram or mm. Facebook page, and we've actually been sharing a lot of the material as well. So surely just have a scroll through social media and you'll come across it eventually. Awesome. Um, so I saw C had a trash walk, and I feel like C also has plenty of other cleanups around Dunedin and have done in the past. So is is waste a, a big focus with C this year? Yes, it's it's funny. It's always ended up being a bit of a focus each year, um, but waste covers a lot of ground. And I think last year we had um, a bit of a look at food waste in particular, and um, this year we we haven't decided yet to explicitly focus on like waste on the streets but we find that yeah having those um, what we call trash walks is a really nice way of getting people together and getting a bit more of a sense of ownership over the place that we live um, because sometimes I think with students coming and going it can be a bit hard to feel that um, same kind of sense that it's it's home. Yeah and maybe the environment is is just temporary for them so I feel like it can you can definitely get in that kind of headspace as a student. Yeah. Um, all right, so segueing into the government proposed initiative, uh, the Container Return Scheme, would you like to give us a bit of a rundown on this scheme for our listeners? Yeah, so this has been, for some groups in particular, a long time coming. Um, it's a scheme that is supposed to reduce the amount of containers going to landfill. So that could be, it's mainly beverage containers, so um, the kind of things that you'd buy water or any other kind of drink in. And they currently are taking up a lot of room in our landfills but also littering our streets and um, I don't need to tell you that that's not so great when it gets into the environment. So the idea with this scheme is to incentivise um, companies to get their containers back and incentivise people who buy them to return them to those companies to, I guess, creating a bit more of a circular economy there. And the way that that would happen is when you've finished with your drink there would be some kind of depot um, hopefully nearby and you could go drop your container off and you'd get a small, um, maybe like 
I, I don't know exactly what it would be, but a uh, fifty cents or something. Yeah, I think return. it's between twenty and fifty cents, possibly. Yeah, and then those would be um, recycled and hopefully reduce the amount that's getting into the environment. Yeah, awesome. So, do you think uh, with this scheme, like, do you think it's going to encourage members of uh, the public and businesses differently? That's the hope. I mm. think it's a really important step in the right direction um, in terms of getting more of that um, circulation of materials rather than a linear progression from consumption to um, waste. But I think it really does need to be done in conjunction with other initiatives because Mm. ultimately, you know, chucking your container in a depot instead of a bin for a bit of money incentive, um, it might have some material impact, but it's not really doing what we fundamentally need which is changing our attitudes towards waste and what we do so um, something that I've heard thrown around before is not just um, reduce reuse recycle but actually slightly longer version that starts with I think rethink and refuse and um, Mm. what I'd love to see is yeah more um, I guess engagement with communities to think about how we can stop the um, I guess production of those containers at the source and the consumption of them in the first place. And often that is actually quite a fun thing to think creatively about how we can get around that. Exactly. And I feel like with certain individuals coming together to create a space with that um, comes hopefully a wider community change and lifestyle and the way they think and the, the baseline of what they want to use, reuse, and, and first what they kind of want to embody in terms of um, a desirable, sustainable society. Um, are there anything, is there anything else um, before we go um, that students can do or members of the public can do to kind of reflect this kind of sustainable society? Yeah, I think, well, just speaking from my position as mm-hmm. co-president of C, um, we're hoping to do some really cool workshops um, this year and those often are around trying to repurpose materials and think about how we can yeah look at um, look at waste or trash a bit differently um, that can even be going back to the theme of food waste uh, composting is a really big one so um, if you're interested then I'd say come along and check out our garden which is on the corner of 4th and Dundas Street because we have a pumping compost going on there like there's literal steam coming off it from the (laughs) success it's having so that's a place where you can drop off your compost or just come see how it works Um, in general though I'd say having that um, community and getting together with other people and thinking about how you can yeah have a bit more of a sustainable lifestyle with others is a really great great way because then you see that actually it's it's better for everyone not just the environment awesome oh well, thank you so much for coming in today and uh giving your um peace it's been really insightful and i think hopefully we've inspired some students to get out there for volunteer week um on the peninsula or Otokanui um and more cool. yeah thanks so much again cool thanks
Alright, that was Little Siv by TJ Shand. Uh, we just had Kate Bonnet in the booth talking about uh, C and the Student Volunteer Week coming up and more. Um, so the time is 11.46. You're listening to Radio 191FM and next up we have a piece on noise control. Noise control in Dunedin receives on average 4,000 noise complaints per year, or at least since COVID. Earlier I spoke to a student who has found herself having to contact noise control countless times per year already. What was your experience like calling noise control? The first time I called noise control was February, like middle of Feb, and they came within the hour of me calling, which they came towards the end of the hour, which was frustrating, but they showed up and they did actually do their job. Have you had to call noise control multiple times in one night? Yes. Last weekend, sorry, the weekend before that, I called four times in a night because they didn't stop until seven in the morning. Um, And noise control that weekend did nothing. I emailed the council and I said, look, like we've got these neighbours that are noisy. Noise control don't seem to be really doing anything. Like I call multiple times and like your website says if multiple calls are made within a night, then speakers get taken and fines get handed out and everything but this has never happened because these neighbors are persistent I got a phone call and pretty much the advice she gave me was just to keep calling and was like well it's up to the officers to assess how excessive the noise is and just keep calling keep paper trail of when you call but unless multiple calls are made within a 72 hour period they can't do anything which is just ridiculous because we've called three to four times in one night and nothing's been done On the other hand, there has been a flat in central Dunedin which has recently been taken to the proctor in regards to the amount of noise complaints. The proctor turned up in person and also sent an email following the conversation, bringing up Section E in the Code of Conduct, saying, quote, No student shall engage in actions that are unreasonably disruptive to other members of the university or local community. And he warns that the next step would likely result in a fine and there would be no further warnings. The DCC's Senior Communications Advisor, Chris Morris, says in regards to house parties, the legislation does not require noise measurements in decibels. If noise is to be found excessive, an excessive noise direction will be issued. And if this is breached, the usual process is to seize the offending equipment, which does require police presence. And as we've seen before, the proctor may also become involved. Noise control in Dunedin receives on average 4,000 noise complaints per year. However, the ratio of calls for house parties versus music venues is unclear. Talking with me next is Dave Bennett, a spokesperson for Save Dunedin Live Music, who gives an update on the live music plan that they and the DCC are creating to advocate for the live music scene. So today we have Dave Bennett, a Save Dunedin Live Music spokesperson. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. Thanks for having me on. No worries. So what is the current situation for local music venues in 2022? It's been a long road and uh, we've kind of had the waters muddied a fair bit by COVID, obviously, because before the virus came around, there was pretty, um, the the effect that noise control was having uh, as a chilling effect on live music venues and the opportunities to do live events in the city was quite stark. 
but now that's kind of been mired in with a bunch of cancellations and and capacity restrictions and other um, factors. But we are getting some positive steps in place at the moment. We've been uh, in talks with the council for well over a year now, formulating a, a live music action plan for the city, which encompasses a lot of things. But at the forefront of that has always been the noise control issue and how the DCC approached particularly live music venues and events with kind of their blanket approach to everyone. There was no special dispensations or, or um, allowances made for venues, but they are, they are reviewing what they do at the moment. We've, we've had an external town plan. have a look at the way that the DCC approaches these things and, and write up a review of how other cities does it in comparison and, it's good to say that they've been cooperative, they've been listening to us, and they're taking that kind of stuff into account right now, and we're continuing to work through the problem, hopefully to get some good outcomes. I saw on your website that you wanted to finish that plan by June this year. Is that looking yeah, that, on track? That is the deadline. Um, it will be finished, come hell or high water by then. But the finishing of the plan is is not necessarily the end of the journey. So the plan, as we see it, it's definitely a few hard things that we wanted to get in by there the the addressing to noise control changes and all that we definitely want all that in the works by the onset of the plan but the plan itself is much more of a citywide approach to um recapture Dunedin's music history and encourage that going forward and it it spans out into many many facets from you know helping young artists to promote and get themselves out there providing rehearsal spaces uh, that are are safe from noise control and other interference uh, affordable and accessible um, encouraging of live venues trying to get ourselves a mid-sized live venue back in this town so that we can actually have a lot of the national touring artists and international touring artists that Dunedin misses out on at the moment because we don't have that. These things will obviously take time. It's not like we're going to be able to go, boom, June, here's all the things. In June, we will have a, a roadmap to those things and we will have points at which we can keep an eye on the progress of that. It will be publicly accessible. People will be able to hold us and the council accountable for things that are getting done to this end. And that's that's well on track to be finished in June. I'm looking forward to it. Right. So, yeah, I I heard you mention the different scope of venues. You know, we've got um, obviously much larger ones, but in terms of the smaller local ones, are you considering all of the different levels of venues? Yeah, doing our best. Um, Basically, it's it comes down to it that Dunedin's lost a lot of what it once had. It used to be a very big music city with a lot of live music bars, DIY venues, you know, attic venues, basement venues, and that's all kind of gone, fell by the wayside. So we're at a point now where we're down to basically a handful of venues in town that still do live music, and most of those are below the 200 capacity limit, which is severely limiting for the kinds of acts. Not to mention the venues that we do have aren't suitable for all bands necessarily. So it's not like you can put one band in every kind of venue. Like if you take Bath, for example, much more of a cafe kind of bar style, you're not going to go putting grindcore and death metal in there because it's just not really suited. So you've only got the crown for that, you know. And so we've ended up in this spot where we've been pruned down to the lowest limit we can. And the process of encouraging those venues to come back is hard. One of the ways we're doing that is by suggesting that we start zoning entertainment areas in the city where special considerations are given to venues and protections so that they can actually operate uh, without fear of being fined or having their their 
ability to deliver events in any way inhibited by the area around them. Um, and we're hoping that that kind of approach will encourage people to come through and start venues, take up some residences and some commercial premises and find other ways to make other spaces in the city venues. And that's that's a tricky thing to do because you can't really regulate that in. You, you can only create the regulatory framework where that is encouraged. And it's up to then the community to fill those gaps. So going from that down to protecting the venues we do have is a big thing. The loss of starters last year was, was a huge thing. And even though that wasn't directly noise related, was the last student bar one of the last bars that could service a lot of the bands that the size that students are really into. And students are a huge community in this town. And I think they're underserved by the current kinds of venues we have. Has the DCC required you to put a max on certain noise levels? Do you have to include decibel readings? How technical do you have to get there? It's extremely technical. Limits aren't necessarily the best way of measuring noise, but boundary limits certainly are a part of it. That's what we're currently using in Dunedin. The boundary limits are set. It's set by the environmental framework of New Zealand at this point, so it's federal law. They have not bothered to necessarily zone other limits around activities and commercial activities. So we are sitting at the base standard, which has an extremely conservative decibel limit, as you would expect, because it is the base standard at which people are meant to regulate upon when they zone. But it is there to protect people's right to peace and quiet in their own homes. Though, that being said, construction works are exempt from a lot of these noise limits because they're considered to be a lot more important than music. So not only do we have boundary limits uh, in, in places, we've suggested several models, but the angle we're taking more is to, with the increasing intensification of, of uh, dwellings within the inner city, which is what we're going for with our, our new city model, we're aiming more on levels of reduction by acoustic insulation installed into new premises and retrofitted into old premises. So not necessarily limiting the noisemakers, but making it so that the environment adequately protects tenants from people who are doing noise-sensitive activities. In conflict resolution, if you have particularly troublesome neighbours and you have to work out a middle ground, we're still going for a few models that use decibel meters, but we're trying to walk away from that, at least in a commercial sense. Cool, yeah. It definitely sounds like if and when this gets passed, it will really empower a lot of um, local artists and venues as well. It'll definitely make a positive impact, which is quite exciting. And yeah, that's what we're hoping for. When we came into this whole thing, it was, we believe that the music community in this town is strong and we believed it was just being hindered and hampered at certain points. And we believe if we could remove some of those roadblocks or not even necessarily remove them, but give people certainty around what they have to do to comply. That was the hardest thing when we first started this is it was all arbitrary and there was no way of anyone telling you what anything was, what limits were, what you could do, what you couldn't do. It was all subjective and it was all arbitrary, which is, as we've learned with COVID over the years as well, uncertainty is one of the hardest things to deal with. People can deal with most things if they're certain it's going to remain that way. But if it's changing on a case-to-case basis, it becomes very tricky for anyone to actually achieve anything. So we're hoping in in freeing the community from this kind of thing and giving them certainty that the community will grow into this and we will grow the music scene from what it is now into a flourishing kind of cultural city like it was. But there's going to be big things in the next couple of months that we're working towards 
and hopefully big things going on from that as well. So if people want to check out what we're doing or keep an eye on what we're doing in the future, save to need live music.com or save to need live music on Facebook. All right, for those of you who have just joined us, that was Dave Bennett on noise control with Dunedin, within Dunedin and how it affects venues. You're listening to R1 News on Radio 191 FM. All right, thank you for tuning in on your Wednesday morning. In case you missed it, over the last hour we covered the government's new pay transparency guidelines with Mind the Gaps' Nina Santos, vaccine passes with co-owner of Woof. Bar Dudley Benson sees co-president Kate Bonnet about Volunteer Week and the Container Return Scheme and Noise Control in Dunedin with Dave Bennett. I'm Athena and this has been R1 News on Radio 191 FM. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. Find more at r1.co.nz.